On a Tuesday so beautiful, you might even call it super. This is Go West Young Podcast, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. On the show this week, former Deputy Interior Secretary David Hayes on the 100th anniversary of the Mineral Leasing Act and how state attorneys general have become the country's best defense against the Trump administration's environmental rollbacks. Plus, instead of going back to this week in Western history, we're going back to a very similar moment with a look at how Gunnison, Colorado managed to escape the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. But first, a quick news update. A federal judge tossed out nearly one million acres of oil and gas leases in sage-grouse habitat, ruling that the Trump administration illegally limited public input before issuing those leases. The ruling marks one of the biggest losses yet for an administration that keeps losing in court. We'll talk more about that with David Hayes in just a minute. The BLM defended its decision to limit public comment as a, quote, common sense adjustment to how it leases and approves oil production on public lands. Now, I want you to keep watching for that phrase, common sense. Interior Secretary David Bernhardt uses it a lot right now. It's shorthand that for them means, in practice, we want to do this thing. We don't have any legal or scientific justification for it, so we're just going to go ahead and do it anyway. The lesson, obviously, is that even if you think something is common sense, that doesn't make it legal. Now, speaking of common sense, the Interior Department was finally shamed into canceling some planned oil and gas leases on Utah's iconic Slick Rock mountain bike trail near Moab. It turns out that with enough bad press, there are some things that even David Bernhardt won't do. And finally, we have our annual look at how much oil and gas companies are spilling across Western lands as they drill. This is something that we've been tracking here at the Center for Western Priorities for the last seven years. Hannah Ryder is our policy and research associate. She crunched the numbers this year. Hannah, welcome to the podcast for the first time. Thanks so much. All right. So what did we find? So across Colorado, Wyoming, and New Mexico, there were 2,800 spills reported in 2019. That's an average of nearly eight spills per day. All right. And when you say spill, a spill can be oil itself, but also a spill of the chemicals that are used in the drilling process? Yes, that's mostly what spills. So in these three states, 170,000 barrels of what's called produced water, which is salty wastewater, often containing toxic chemicals, spilled. Um, and that's compared to just under 24,000 barrels of oil that spilled. Okay, so close to an order of magnitude more in terms of the, the that produced water spilling. We've been tracking this now for seven years. What does the trend line look like over the, over the years? In each state, the number of spills um, has increased since we began tracking. Compared to 2018, uh, the number of spills went up in both Wyoming and Colorado. In New Mexico, the number of spills dropped a bit, but the amount spilled did go up. Okay. So New Mexico also tracks natural gas leaks. How much are we, we talking about there? Because that's a whole lot of production happening in New Mexico right now. 812 million cubic feet of leaked natural gas was reported. That's over three times more than the previous year. That's the same as driving about 9,500 cars for a year or what it takes to heat more than 5,000 homes. That is a lot of natural gas just going straight up into the air. Uh, Hannah Ryder is the policy and research associate here at the Center for Western Priorities. She crunched the numbers on this year's oil and gas spill tracker. You will find a link to her work in the show notes. Hannah, thanks. Thanks so much. 
Our guest this week is one of the top environmental and natural resources attorneys in the country. David J. Hayes is the head of the State Energy and Environmental Impact Center at the NYU School of Law. He also teaches and researches at Stanford. And before that, he did two stints at the Interior Department. He was the Deputy Secretary and Chief Operating Officer at the Interior Department under Presidents Clinton and Obama. David J. Hayes, welcome to the podcast. Aaron, it's great to be with you. I want to start with a big anniversary that was in the news this month. The Mineral Leasing Act turned 100. This is the law that governs all oil and gas leasing on public lands, including the royalty rates that drillers pay for extracting publicly owned resources. What do you see as the legacy of the Mineral Leasing Act, and how do you think it could be updated, fixed, or tossed out in the 21st century? Well, uh, the Mineral Leasing Act as you know and many of your listeners know, uh, provides the framework by which um, minerals, including oil and gas and coal, are leased from the public lands to third parties. Uh, it's not the only piece of the framework. There's also, uh, obviously, the Federal Lands uh, uh, Management and Policy Act, uh, FLIPMA, which uh, requires the Interior Department to look out for uh, the integrity of the public lands when conducting operations under the Mineral Leasing Act and other statutes. Um, uh, both together give a lot of discretion to the secretary as to uh, whether and where and how uh, to lease uh, public resources to private parties. And I think it's fair to say that uh, this administration is abusing the, the Mineral Leasing Act in a way we've not seen before. In terms of the way it's being abused, does that to you then point to a roadmap for fixing or updating it if it is subject to abuse like that? Well, you know, we're, it's uh, so we've, we've had a yin and a yang uh, with different uh, administrations in terms of the eagerness to use the Mineral Leasing Act aggressively to promote uh, oil and gas. Um, Clinton administration uh, did a lot of leasing when I was there, uh, but in, but was careful to do it in the right way and in the right places. The Bush administration came in um, with Dick Cheney uh, being quite aggressive, more aggressive in oil and gas, and uh, increasing the areas uh, for uh, oil for oil and gas leasing. Uh, Obama administration was much more balanced and introduced the concept that uh, if we're going to be developing our public lands for energy, let's uh, get renewable energy into the mix and, and very much emphasize that. Uh, but with this administration, what we find is we're back to the future here with um, a single-minded emphasis on oil and gas development. Um, an interest, a strong interest in coal development that unfortunately for the administration isn't met by market demand. Uh, and when I say abuse, I, I'm focusing on two things mainly, Aaron. Uh, one is uh, uh, the public is not getting fair value for oil and gas that's removed from the public lands. And that's a signal uh, element of the Mineral Leasing Act. And secondly, um, the administration is leasing in places where oil and gas uh, has no business being, uh, conflicting with conservation interests, recreational interests, wildlife interests, uh, et cetera. 
so the fair value, that would be then the royalty rates, which are 12.5% for onshore, and that's half of what, for example, Texas has for for oil and gas leasing on on state lands there. In terms of the places that are being leased, is that something that could be addressed with updating the Mineral Leasing Act? Is that just having the courts enforce NEPA and the other, uh, other conservation laws? What does that look like? I, I suspect the Mineral Leasing Act is not the best vehicle to uh, use to identify areas that should not be leased. Uh, it's an interesting concept. Um, unfortunately, Aaron, as you know, we're in an environment where it's hard to imagine uh, any new laws in this area. <laughs> and uh, at least for the short term, I think we're going to need to depend on uh, having folks uh, at the Interior Department in the Secretary's chair who care about where uh, the Mineral Leasing Act applies. Um, we don't have that here. Um, and what's happened in the last three and a half years uh, is we have seen uh, areas that were set aside in the last administration as particularly important for sage grouse um, as a result of a, an incredible conservation deal that was put together by uh, 11 uh, states, uh, uh, the uh, federal government, industry, and environmental groups. Um, the administration is essentially blown that uh, plan apart and is offering up to 9 million acres of prime sage-grouse management areas for oil and gas drilling. That's no place to do oil and gas drilling. And the whole idea there of that protection, of course, was to help keep this bird off the Endangered Species Act. But uh, again, it's full speed ahead on oil and gas leasing. Then you've got the National Monuments with Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante. Another three million acres of previously protected lands now potentially open for mineral leasing. Uh, you've got the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, another million and a half acres of very sensitive areas. You've got a potential expansion of the National Petroleum Reserve up into the, the Tashupak Lake area, one of the uh, most important ecological areas in the world. Um, the, the list goes on. Obviously, you are not a fan of some of the discretion, I guess we can call it, that, that Secretary Bernhardt has exercised in leasing off all of these places and blowing up previous deals that, that took years to put together, like sage grouse, as you mentioned. And we saw yet another court case on the grouse this uh, just this month get get tossed out by a court uh, because the administration is is not following the law. What are you hearing from folks who I presume you are still in contact with? And I'm not going to ask you to name names, but what's the feeling inside the department these days based on what the, the political leadership is ordering right now? Well, I think there's a lot of um, anxiety in in the department um, what the department has lost in the last three and a half years is balance. Um, uh, the Bureau of Land Management, when I was the deputy secretary, was really one of my favorite agencies in the Interior Department. And there are a lot of bureaus clamoring for that, uh, that spot. Obviously, the National Park Service, uh, United States Geological Sur uh, Survey, and other uh, components of the Interior Department all have a lot to offer. But BLM has, a, has enormously fabulous, fabulously important landscapes, 10% of the landmass of the U.S. It's the largest landowner, single landowner in the country. 
and and the workforce understands the importance of balance. Uh, they know that they uh, have a responsibility to look toward future generations and ensure that uh, lands are managed responsibly and sustainably. And what you and that requires balance. That requires a lot of public input. And you mentioned Aaron the court case that just came down uh, yesterday, the Western Watersheds case, where the court reaffirmed the injunction against oil and gas drilling in these sage-grouse management areas and, and put, a, put an exclamation point on it by uh, confirming that uh, a number of the procedures that have been adopted by the BLM uh, to in connection with leasing in those areas and in other areas uh, were not lawfully uh, promulgated. Uh, that wasn't through a rulemaking, but rather by an administrative fiat. All of a sudden, the rights of public participation in the NEPA process have been nixed. The 30-day opportunity to review a potential lease before it's it's executed uh, was nixed. The protest period was was changed from 30 days to 10 days. I mean, this is not balanced decision making. And in the midst of it, you've got crazy leasing uh, suggested in Chaco Canyon that uh, where there had to be, they finally had to be back off of that because of the political pressure. Uh, the Slick, Slick Rock uh, Recreation Area in Utah, again, they backed off. But these are just the ones that bubble up to the national consciousness. There are leases in very important sensitive areas every day that are being uh, uh, provided to oil and gas companies against the national interest. And then amidst all of that, we have the administration trying to move the Bureau of Land Management headquarters out of Washington, D.C. and start up a new headquarters with only like 30 people or so in it in Grand Junction. What's your, your take on that? Is this just an attempt to the to for a brain drain to get rid of expertise? Is there some actual potential benefit that you could see here? Uh, Aaron, I can't get in the head of the decision makers uh, here on moving the headquarters uh, to Western Colorado. I can only say that it is one of the most boneheaded ideas uh, that I've uh, encountered uh, in a long time. Um, it, it is a way to uh, tie a hand of the BLM behind its back uh, by, by freezing it out of the, uh, the Washington decision-making process uh, in the secretary and deputy secretary's offices at Maine Interior on the Hill across the street at OMB uh, where their decision, the decisions about their funding, their capabilities, their relationships with the other agencies with, with which they have to work uh, are made every day. Um, and I know that uh, in my time uh, during the Obama administration, when we were pushing hard to have to better coordinate Bureau of Land Management with the Fish and Wildlife Service, with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, with the USGS, uh, with the Fish and Wildlife Service and others in connection, for example, with making good decisions about citing renewable energy projects on public lands. If there's an empty chair in the room and BLM, the, the primary permit permitor is not available, that is not a good way to run a government. So it is a way to cut those folks out of the room where it happens, to, to borrow again from Hamilton? 
it is, and uh, it, it also um, already, as you know, Aaron, ninety-five percent of the BLM folks are already in the field. So it's a canard to say that this is being done so that BLM will be closer to uh, to the lands that it manages. Already can't be any closer. What you're doing is taking away the ability of any centralized effort to uh, facilitate sound management. So, for example, when you're trying to figure out broad scale, landscape scale decisions about where, for example, to encourage renewable energy or oil and gas uh, extraction, you've got, to, you've got to be able to have a brain trust that you can count on to bring the sources together that are on the ground in these many disparate areas and come up with good data and good analysis and good decisions and, uh, and, and reverting uh, the, the headquarters to a small group in Grand Junction, Colorado is, is not a recipe for success in that regard. The Trump administration across the board had a, has a pretty dismal track record in the courts and on environmental policy in particular, the, the Institute of Policy Integrity at NYU tracks this stuff and they've tracked 36 different environmental actions that have been taken to court. And of those 36, the administration has won one of those cases. I'm not a math major, uh, but I'm pretty sure that is a 3% win rate. So are we lucky that these people aren't very good at their jobs? Or is there some other explanation here when you lose 35 out of 36 times in court? Uh, it, it is a remarkable, remarkably bad uh, track record the administration has in the courts. Um, and I think that's uh, for several reasons. That's due to several reasons. Um, one is uh, the, the administration knows where it wants to go and it wants to go there quickly, uh, and it doesn't necessarily matter uh, to it whether uh, there is a sound uh, fact-based and science-based uh, rationale that supports moving in that direction. Uh, that, so the combination of haste and uh, lack of commitment to addressing issues on the ground uh, via facts and science uh, has served up to the courts many actions that are poorly reasoned, uh, poorly supported, uh, and or just outright um, legally unsupportable. Um, so I, I suppose that's a silver lining for those of us who think that many of these decisions are ill-considered. Um, it, and it's to some extent, it's a full employment approach for lawyers, uh, <laughs> including uh, yours truly here. <laughs> Um, but it's it's not the way we should be running our government. And I suppose that brings us to what you are doing now, the NYU State Energy and Environmental Impact Center, the key word there being states. And with everything you have just said over the last 10 minutes, does this mean in your mind that states are the ones leading on conservation right now? And how does your work fit into that picture? Yes, st uh, states really are leading on a number of fronts. Um, our center uh, was formed at the behest of progressive state attorneys general uh, who were concerned about the incoming Trump administration and what it would do uh, with regard to environmental issues, climate issues, and clean energy issues, the big ball of wax here. Conservation is part of all of that, of course. 
Um, and um, unfortunately, uh, we've been very busy. Um, we, we have a very active website, which I invite your listeners to connect with. If you just Google uh, NYU State Impact Center, we'll, it'll We'll put a link up. into the show notes uh, as well. Excellent, excellent. Um, and uh, you'll see the breadth of the uh, issues that we are working with AGs on. In terms of conservation, um, Javier Becerra in California, the AG and uh, AG Hector Balderas, for example, have been New Mexico, yeah, uh, in New Mexico on on important uh, issues, BLM issues, including the repeal of the federal fracking uh, protections, the the BLM valuation rule, which uh, very much uh, diminishes uh, was designed to reform uh, the royalty system under the Mineral Leasing Act, bringing us back to the top of the show here. But they've also weighed in on, on important matters like the inadequate environmental impact statement uh, uh, behind the potential opening of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge uh, to uh, uh, oil and gas drilling. And they, they've been amicus on uh, the, the monument uh, litigation. So they are, they are very attentive to, uh, to these issues and uh, I'm proud to uh, to be associated with them on on these important matters. And we've talked to uh, to Hector Balderas and, and Phil Weiser on this podcast before, and I, I do want to get Javier Becerra at some point as well. Give us a sense then of the role you're playing behind the scenes. Is this helping with coordination? Is it legal research? Uh, how how does the center fit in? Uh, it, it's all of the above. Um, we have attorney-client relationships with several offices, um, uh, enabling us to uh, provide legal advice uh, and, uh, and feed information into the offices for their consideration. Uh, we also uh, work hard on the communications side and uh, with our website and also with periodic Webinars and other uh, analysis that we that we do. Um, so it's a uh, uh, we're, we're 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 helping, but we are we are not on the pleadings. Uh, the the AGs uh, and their offices uh, are the ones that are filing these 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 suits uh, and uh, prosecuting them very effectively. Uh, we're we're here to to provide uh, support uh, for that activity. So we here at Center for Western Priorities are tracking more than 70 potential rules that could come down from the Trump administration this year that they have indicated already in writing that they're intending to do. At some point, is the idea to just overwhelm state AGs? I mean, is there a capacity limit to the amount of defending that they can do, given that it, it sounds like the way you're describing it, that the state AGs are in many ways the, the last line of defense against these administration policies? Uh, it, it has been an enormous burden on AG offices. Uh, the, uh, the nature and scope of these rollbacks is phenomenal. And uh, the, I think all of us, to some extent, are a feeling rollback fatigue, uh, but we can't stop uh, dealing with these things because uh, it seems like the next one up is 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 yet another serious insult to the environment. Look at the Waters of the United States rule that just came out uh, within the last three weeks or so, uh, potentially 
uh, well, in fact, it's a final rule that on its face would uh, have the federal government leave the field of play for uh, protecting half the wetlands in the United States and 20% of the stream miles in the United States. So the stakes are so high uh, that, and the, the AGs are so committed on behalf of their, uh, their residents uh, to environmental protection uh, and consumer protection uh, and also states' rights on clean energy that this, this is what they do and, and they have stepped up in an amazing way. And uh, we're happy to help provide some supplemental resources for them in that regard. Does that irony still weigh with you that all of a sudden the the states' rights crowd uh, believes in states' rights unless uh, unless environmental protections come up? <laughs> uh, it certainly does, and 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 uh, you see this in a number of areas, but particularly I would say in the clean energy area. You, you know, the, the probably the biggest threat to conservation is is uh, climate change, and the answer to climate change is transitioning to clean energy and away from oil and gas. And the leading states are pushing hard on that and, and are uh, supporting clean energy every way they can. Um, and ironically, the federal government is standing in the way uh, through the uh, uh, things like the, uh, uh, the recent MOPA rule of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that, that essentially uh, uh, knocks out of capacity markets uh, state-subsidized clean energy. Uh, never mind that the under the Mineral Leasing Act and other uh, federal statutes, oil and gas gets plenty of subsidies. Uh, and never mind that states actually have the right to shape the energy system they want under the the Federal Power Act. Um, so uh, we're we're it is ironic, Aaron, that um, uh, that that we're getting resistance from the administration. Uh, on uh, the basic prosecution of state states' rights uh, across the board. How can a future administration most quickly or efficiently or effectively address the, la the damage of the last three-plus years? Who are the voices a future administration should be listening to on this? Well, I hope a future administration will lis listen to all voices uh, in a way that this administration is not. That's number one. Uh, and uh, gather the best uh, intel possible to decide how to prioritize what to do. Um, in part because of the poor track record that you were referring to before in terms of litigation, uh, many of the, of the most significant rollbacks um, have not taken root. Uh, because of court setbacks uh, and, and or have been delayed. Uh, so the hope is that uh, many of the final rules uh, will either not be final or will not uh, have had much time to again take root. Um, a, an administration interested in uh, moving forward and not backward is, uh, will, will, be, will be presented with uh, the task of doing it right in terms of changing the direction uh, back to a conservation and balanced approach to our natural resources. And it will require in some cases um, doing what this administration did poorly, which is building an administrative record, uh, getting public participation and putting in place a, uh, a durable uh, uh, rule and approach 
that uh, that will stand the test of time and certainly stand the test of court review, judicial review. You have to do your homework in order to make it stick. Got to do your homework. Um, that's one of the lessons uh, that uh, uh, that is uh, of, uh, right in front of us for all of us to see uh, from the the Trump's uh, Trump administration's rollback effort. David, what is your backstory? How did you end up in an environmental law and environmental policy? Well, Aaron, I, I kind of fell into it. Um, I, uh, I grew up in Western New York State uh, and uh, in the Finger Lakes uh, country uh, south of Rochester. And um, but my uh, when I went to law school, I went to the West Coast at Stanford and uh, and that introduced me to the glorious West. And um, I, I started out uh, when I came back to Washington. I was interested in public policy, but we had Ronald Reagan and then George Bush in the administration. So I was in private practice, uh, picking up all the environmental cases I could, doing pro bono work on the side, um, and then had the chance to go into the administration, uh, very fortunately, uh, and uh, had the time of my life working with Bruce Babbitt and his team at Interior in the Clinton administration and heading up the transition team for Barack Obama in the environmental area and getting a chance to uh, be a recidivist and go back again. So I feel very fortunate uh, at my career path and the opportunities I've been blessed to have. I'd imagine that over those two stints at Interior, uh, particularly being at the end of both of those administrations when we saw some uh, some really remarkable policies getting done, uh, including Grand Staircase Escalante at the end of the uh, of the Clinton administration. You must have seen some amazing places across the country. Uh, any favorite stories or trips that you like to look back on? Um, there are several. Uh, I'll mention one. Um, I believe it was 1999 uh, when I testified for the Clinton administration against oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and a ranking member, um, actually uh, the, uh, uh, the the chairman of the committee at the time, I believe, was Don Young of, of Alaska. And somebody passed a note to him uh, and then he, he his carotid artery started uh, uh, <laughs> uh, moving uh, visibly. And he said, I understand that you are testifying against oil drilling in the refuge and you've never been there. Is that right? And I said, Yes, that's right, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I, I, I did visit Prudhoe Bay and the oil fields to the west of the Arctic, but I haven't been. Well, how can you testify on this then, you know? So I said, Mr. Chairman, um, I will go. And a week later, and it was summer solstice, uh, I took a three-hour flight in a Cessna by Fish and Wildlife Service, and we landed on a sandbar in the coastal plain of the Arctic Refuge and camped out for three days, and it was magic. Uh, over the rise came the porcupine caribou herd oh. members silently going, uh, parting around our camp and heading up for uh, their birthing. Uh, and uh, it's made me passionate, all the more passionate about um, protecting our special places like the refuge. And all thanks to, to Don Young. Yes, indeed. <laughs> David J. Hayes is the head of the State Energy and Environmental Impact Center at the NYU School of Law. David, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, Aaron, it was my pleasure. Thank you. 
like to wrap things up with a trip back in Western history. And rather than going back to this week in history like we usually do, we're going back to a similar moment in history. So with all of the concern over the COVID-19 virus that's now starting to spread in the U.S., we're looking at how the town of Gunnison, Colorado, managed to escape the brunt of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. Now, first of all, I want to point out that even the name Spanish flu is a lesson in how to make a pandemic worse. The flu that year did not start in Spain, nor did it hit Spain particularly hard. Spain just happened to be the only country being honest at the time. The rest of the world, of course, was in the middle of the Great War, and every country that was involved in the war didn't want the other side to know how many of its people were sick. So the US, the UK, Germany, and France were all suppressing or downplaying their infection numbers. Spain, on the other hand, was neutral in the war, it had no reason to hide the extent of the pandemic, and Spain had a free press that was reporting extensively on the outbreak. So the misnamed Spanish flu was actually spreading amongst non-Spanish troops across all of Europe, and those troops, living in close, filthy quarters, of course, brought the flu back home with them as the war came to a close. And that is exactly what happened in Colorado in the fall of 1918. In late September, 250 soldiers from Montana arrived in Boulder for training. 13 of them were seriously ill. Another 200 soldiers arrived in Colorado Springs. 25 of them were sick with the flu. And from those two areas, influenza quickly started to spread across the state. On October 7th, the governor urged local officials to close public places. One week later, he banned all public and private gatherings across the state. And that brings us to Gunnison, a mountain town in central Colorado. At the time, about 1,300 people lived there, and town leaders watched as the pandemic spread ever closer. In early October, after the governor's first warning, Gunnison closed its schools across the entire county. Rumors were spreading that the town of Salida, just 65 miles to the east, had 500 flu cases by the end of the month. So Gunnison, both the county and the town, took extreme measures. Anyone getting off a train was immediately quarantined for two days. Barricades went up along the highways, warning travelers that if they stopped anywhere in the county, they would have to submit to the quarantine too. If residents left the county, they'd have to go into quarantine when they came back. Even travel between places within Gunnison County was heavily restricted. And these measures were no joke. Two motorists from Nebraska got thrown in jail for trying to bypass the barricades. Another man from Pitkin, inside the county, was fined for trying to evade the quarantine. And here's the thing. It worked. One woman got sick when she met her sister at the train station. That traveling sister was infected when she came into town, and the local sister died at the ranch a few days later. But that was effectively it for the terrible influenza winter of 1918. Gunnison entirely escaped the first two waves of the Spanish flu, even as every town around it saw dozens or hundreds of people get sick and die. So what happened after that? Well, by the end of January, schools reopened. But again, any students re-entering the county would have to go through that two-day quarantine. And finally, during the first week of February 1919, the town and the county lifted the quarantine rules. Residents could meet in public and travel again. And you know what happened? Six weeks after that, the third wave of the influenza pandemic rolled into town. 
And this time, without those protective measures in place, at least 100 people in Gunnison and another 40 in Pitkin got sick. At least five young people died from influenza. And so today, the steps that Gunnison took to protect itself from the pandemic in 1918 are a lesson to public health officials as they try to stop the coronavirus from spreading across the West 102 years later. And that's it for this episode of Go West Young Podcast. We've got a couple live episodes coming up in the next couple weeks from the Collaborative Conservation Network at Colorado State University, and then also the annual benefit dinner for the American Alpine Club. I am very excited to be hosting those. If you happen to be at either event, please say hi. Thanks again to David J. Hayes for his insight into the Interior Department. You can find more about his work at the NYU State Energy and Impact Center in the show notes. I'm Aaron Weiss. On behalf of Hannah Ryder and the whole team here at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks for listening. <laughs>